0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app.
1: for details. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Your cash back really adds up.
0: Hey, everybody. We got a great one today, you know, for a change. Norm Ornstein is with us, but this time he's with his buddy, Tom Mann. Now, these, these guys have been two of the most respected political scientists among Republicans and Democrats for decades and decades until About a decade ago, when they uh, wrote a groundbreaking book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, Uh, then Republicans uh, started kind of hating them. Now, uh, part of the reason they were so respected, is that for years they uh, had been, uh, I guess, what you call honest brokers. Norm was with the more conservative think tank, the American Enterprise Institute, Tom uh, for Brookings, the uh, liberal Washington (laughs) think tank. And so everyone in D.C. would talk to them. And uh, Norm and Tom were very influential. For example, Norm uh, was a key advisor to John McCain and Russ Feingold on McCain-Feingold, which was uh, one of the most significant campaign finance reform bills in history. Uh, But at a certain point, uh, the Republican Party, it just went off the rails. It uh, had been trending that way uh, with Newt Gingrich and Tom DeLay, but uh, during... The Obama administration. They uh, ceased to become a political party that had any moorings whatsoever in in, in terms of serving the American people. Uh, Mitch McConnell stated very clearly right after Obama's election that his goal was to see to it that Obama was a one term president, just as his stated intention now is to spend 100% of his time fighting every bit of Joe Biden's agenda. So Tom and Norm wrote their book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks, and it was a runaway bestseller, but the Washington journalist class continued to engage in a lot of false equivalents under the guise of uh, balance. Uh, it'd be like, uh, Democrats say that uh, the climate is changing and we'll have catastrophic effects for our children and for our children's children. Republicans, well, they say that's not happening. A couple of weeks ago, John Harwood uh, wrote a piece for CNN, said um, basically these two guys had it right. The Republican Party is and has been a complete sham for years now, and Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann called it long before everybody else. Now, uh, speaking of McConnell, holy cow. He just said something so offensive this past week. He was asked at uh, a press thing uh, about where he stands on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and he said this. It's against the law to discriminate in voting on the base of race already, and so I think it's unnecessary. Here's the thing. Discrimination in voting based on race has been illegal since 1870. You see, it's the 15th Amendment. Here it is. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any states on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Huh. All right, well, I guess McConnell's right. It's been illegal in this country to deny or abridge people the right to vote on account the race, you know, since 1870. So, what's all the fuss? I guess there haven't been any problems in the last 151 years. How awful is this man, Mitch McConnell? Look, we have to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to restore what is called pre-clearance. Now, what is what is pre-clearance? Well, it's really friggin' important. Pre-clearance. Uh, was written into the original 1965 Voting Rights Act. Basically, pre-clearance applied to certain states and jurisdictions which had a history of discriminating against people because of their race or color. States like, oh, Mississippi or Alabama or South Carolina or Louisiana or Georgia or North Carolina or Virginia. Hmm. What are those... Oh, states having in common. I wish I knew my American history. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They were all in the Confederacy. And just coincidentally, all had a history of denying people of color the right to vote, you know, after they <laughs> freed them. Uh, now, how did, how did they do that? How did they do that in, in these states? Well, they got creative. Take a state like Mississippi. They would routinely administer impossible literacy tests to black people. Now, I'm 70 years old, and I remember this stuff. There was a a great black comedian, Godfrey Cambridge, uh, of whom I was a huge fan because he was very funny. Also, he was a satirist. And Godfrey Cambridge would tell this story about a black guy trying to vote in Mississippi. And the poll worker stops the guy and says... Well, you're going to have to take a literacy test, son." And the black guy says, "Okay." And the poll worker holds up a copy of the Gaysburg address and says, "Okay, now read this." And the guy says, "Okay, four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent a new Okay, okay," says the poll worker. "Now read this." And he holds up a copy of the Wall Street Journal. And the black guy says, Okay, uh, Dow Jones Industrials closed down four points today, mixed trading. Now, the poll worker is very frustrated and he pulls out a newspaper, a Chinese newspaper. And he says, Okay, boy, what does this say? And the black guy says, It says the N word. Godfrey used the N word. I won't. It says the N word ain't voting in Mississippi this year. Now, I heard Godfrey Cambridge tell that joke when I was 13 years old, and I knew what it meant, and I never forgot it. Sometimes a joke can have a way of sticking. The Congress that passed the Voting Rights Act knew full well that those states and jurisdictions were run by white men who did everything they could to suppress the vote of people whose skin was the color of Godfrey Cambridge. So the 1965 Voting Rights Act prohibited the old discriminatory practices like like literacy tests and required all the covered states and jurisdictions to get rid of all their discriminatory practices and from then on to submit any new changes in their voting procedures, things like closing or moving polling places Changes in ID requirements, reduction in early voting days, purges to voting rolls. Sound familiar? They had to submit those changes to the United States Department of Justice for pre-clearance. That's pre-clearance. Well, the Voting Rights Act actually worked really well. And Congress reauthorized it uh, every few years. And uh, almost unanimously... In Congress. But then, in 2013, Shelby County, Alabama, county just south of uh, Birmingham, sued then Attorney General Eric Holder in federal court, arguing that parts of the Voting Rights Act were unconstitutional. The Supreme Court took the case, and in a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court ruled the act unconstitutional and ended preclearance for those states and counties. In his opinion, Roberts wrote that, quote, the blight of racial discrimination has been ameliorated and that preclearance was no longer needed. But Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's dissent was as powerful as it was prescient. This is what she wrote. Throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes, is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. A great quote has a way of sticking. And of course, she was immediately, immediately proven right. Within weeks of the Shelby decision, the North Carolina state legislature passed voter restriction laws to purge voter rolls. Instead of preclearance by the Justice Department, any any objections to the this obvious voter suppression had to work its way through the courts so it wasn't until 3 years later that the 4th circuit the appeals court ruled that the changes voted through by the North Carolina state legislature had quote this is their quote targeted blacks with almost surgical precision <sighs> Many black North Carolinians didn't vote in North Carolina in 2014 because they were targeted with almost surgical precision. Now, in between, Republican Tom Tillis, who had led the effort in the state legislature to target black voters, narrowly defeated my Democratic colleague Kay Hagan for the U.S. Senate In the 2014 election, that seat was taken away from Kay and the Democrats because of John Roberts' Shelby County. It didn't take long for the Republicans on the Hill to see that the Shelby County decision had worked in their favor. And in 2019, after a Democratic House passed a new Voting Rights Act that would restore preclearance, Mitch McConnell and the Senate refused to hold a floor vote on the bill. We have the majority now in the discussion with uh, Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann coming up. You'll hear us discuss voting rights. You'll hear us discuss Norm's and my plan to modify the filibuster so we can make the election reforms that we have to make. I know you're going to really like this one for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com slash Franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply.
1: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
0: Brookings, is, is, as you may know, you should probably know, is uh, kind of considered the uh, the liberal think tank, a slightly progressive uh, think tank. AEI considered uh, by many uh, a conservative or very conservative or nutcase right um, <laughs> <laughs> think tank. But Norm has been there, I think, longer than almost anyone who's currently there now, and that's why he's emeritus, but uh, has always been a a, uh, steadfast centrist and has been able to, and so has Tom, been able to talk to both sides of the aisle uh, and have been uh, considered pretty much honest brokers. And together they've written how many books, guys? How many? How many? It's so many, we can't even count them anymore. Okay, well, you've written a lot of books. And I was talking to Tom before we just got on. The best-selling of all your books was It's Even Worse Than It Looks. It came out in 2012. And in it, um, you kind of took a little bit of a departure from what people perceived as your steadfast, even-handedness, and basically said Republicans are the problem, that Republicans are the problem. And at the time... uh, People didn't really, a lot of people did recognize it, and that's why I think the book was so popular. But just uh, a couple weeks ago, John Harwood uh, wrote a piece on, on CNN saying, like, these guys nailed it nine years ago. And it's about, some t- about time that someone really recognized that the GOP is a broken party. Is that about right? Am I s- summarizing that? Yeah. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Good. Well, congratulations. Okay, to me for getting it right. This is what you wrote in the the book. I think it's in the book. I know it's in the article. The GOP has become an insurgent outlier in American politics. It is ideologically extreme, scornful of compromise, unmoved by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. Not at the time, I was in the Senate, and I went, yeah, of course.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, right? Everyone knows yeah. that. And evidently, no, it was revolutionary, and you didn't quite get the, uh, the credit from, I don't know, the uh, John Harwoods, I guess, at the time. The, the established uh, media thinkers who, who would go like, you know what? That, they're right. It took them. uh, It took people a while, and it's it's amazing to me that it took them this long because this has been clear, I think, since I got there in two thousand nine. And it's about Mitch McConnell in a big way. It's also about Newt Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh. But um, speak to uh, take your little victory lap here, guys, or your big victory lap.
2: The article itself uh went viral in the Washington post, and the book sold so many copies, partly because it was had an argument that was unexpected from the two of us uh who as as you said in your introduction uh had played a a pretty honest broker role in in uh in covering congress and American politics and as uh as scholars. So there was a a bit of a shock value, but what was really the problem was that the whole sort of basis of both scholarship and news was to treat the parties comparably, that they assumed a symmetric uh, relationship, that they were uh, equally to blame for the gridlock and the the general inability to function properly in our democratic system. So uh, now it's become common to talk about the false equivalents that reporters like to put on stories. They say this, and the other side says that, and what are you going to do? They disagree.
0: Democrats will say the earth is round uh republicans will say it's flat uh we don't know which is true <laughs> that's sort of what's been going on for a long time but you guys pointed out that the earth was actually it was round but not round like a plate but round like a cantaloupe <laughs> and that was the breakthrough that was really- oh
2: <laughs> i bet you're in awe aren't you al but that we made such a fundamental breakthrough.
3: We've been seeing this coming for some time. Uh, We wrote a book in 2006 called The Broken Branch, How Congress is Failing America and How to Get It Back on Track. And in that one, we, you know, hit both parties pretty hard. But we hit the Republicans a little bit harder because uh, when Bush was president and Dennis Hastert was uh, the speaker of the House, you could see this moving Uh, in a very different direction than what we'd seen in Congress before that. Although, of course, we also had made it very clear, really going back to the 1970s, that Newt Gingrich was transforming both the Republican Party and the larger landscape uh, into something very different. But by the time we saw uh, Barack Obama come in as president and the reaction of the Republican Party uh, in the House and Senate The breaking of norms, the uh, complete trashing of science and expertise, the willingness to do anything to accomplish political ends, the so called young guns in the House. Uh, Paul Ryan, uh, who of course later became Speaker, Eric Cantor, who became the majority leader before being ousted by a Tea Party guy, and then Kevin McCarthy, who has now uh, proven uh, himself as the minority leader in the House to be the worst leader uh, that the House has ever seen. Went around the country fanning the flames of uh, racism, really, and uh, a kind of right-wing populism that was the precursor of Trump. And then Mitch McConnell blowing up every norm in the Senate. And while we had worked with as many Republicans as Democrats uh, for decades in Congress to reform the institution and help it work better, it became clear to us that this was different than what we'd seen. It was a clear and present danger to the country and our political system and democracy. And we took the leap and basically just called it as we saw it. And that really did create a firestorm.
0: Now, let's relate that to what's going on now, just right now. And I'm thinking about Joe Manchin and again, Mitch McConnell is a player here. And Joe Manchin is saying, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to co sponsor uh, the For the People Voting Rights Act because it's not bipartisan. Now, for something to be bipartisan, you need two parties. And I think it's very clear, and it should be very clear to Joe Manchin, that you can't be bipartisan if Mitch McConnell is refusing to be bipartisan, especially on something as basic as voting rights. So I'm wondering uh, what your view is on what Joe, I know Joe, I have, uh, uh, and, and Norm, you and I have been talking about filibuster reform, and we'll get into that a little later in this discussion, but what the hell is going on? Joe hasn't cited any actual provision of that bill that he objects to. He won't. What that? What is going on there? Joe Manchin
3: has, I think, uh, two ridiculous and rosy conceptions in his head about the Senate. One of them comes from his deep-seated belief that, uh, as the uh, person holding the seat that Robert Byrd held in the Senate for fifty plus years, that he is the guardian of the Senate and that it has a long tradition of deep bipartisanship that was encouraged and promoted by Rule 22, the filibuster rule. The other is that there are at least 10 Republicans in the Senate who, uh, with the uh, appropriate uh, incentives, will work with Democrats, and that if you do things with just one party, that uh, it will come back to haunt you what we've seen in the Senate and what we know from where it is right now is that all of this is ridiculous. First of all, Robert Byrd, uh, if we want to look at the lasting image of Robert Byrd, the last one, it was when he was wheeled into the chamber in his wheelchair from his deathbed because Mitch McConnell insisted that to get the Affordable Care Act moving along, every one of the 60 Democrats had to show up on the floor to overcome the filibuster of a bill, of course, that was largely built on Republican conceptions. And Robert Byrd shook his fist at Mitch McConnell and the Republicans and said in a shaky voice, shame, shame. He knew that this was not the same Senate. And you were there, Al, and you saw it.
0: I was there. I witnessed that. And the tradition of the Senate would it normally have been, we're not going to get him out of his, almost really his deathbed to cast this vote. We'll exchange a vote. We know how he'll vote if he makes it to the floor. We're not going to make him do this. So we'll trade a vote. We'll have somebody on our side vote for him. Nope, nope. We're going to make Robert Byrd get out of his deathbed and go to the floor. And he had held his, his arm up, pointed, and said, shame, shame. Shame, and I've said this to Joe, and Joe is is not upholding the tradition of Robert Bird. Ro- Byrd changed stuff all the time. He, cha- you know, he he was there when the rules changed on the filibuster, other other changes as as well. And we we've come to an impasse now. And during that period, of course, and I I don't mean to to dominate this right now, but I. You both know how much McConnell had basically just said to his caucus, we're going to make this guy a one-term president and we're not going to vote for anything. We're not going to help him anyway. We're going to block every damn thing we can. And that's what they were doing. And that's what he's doing now. And we we know that McConnell has said this about
3: Biden, that 100% of his uh, focus is on blocking everything that Biden wants. The curious thing here is that, there is a rule that should push for bipartisan cooperation, and it is the reconciliation rule. So, if you think back to when the American rescue package came up at the beginning of the Biden presidency, it was clear that there were 50 votes. All 50 Democrats were going to support a bill that could pass with 50. And Biden made it clear to Republicans that he would prefer to make it a bipartisan bill and that he would make changes and accommodate some of their concerns if they would work with him. And so they either were going to get the full Monty, the full bill that Biden wanted, or get something that would have less spending, which they preferred, less money going to the states, which they wanted, more of a market orientation, which they could get. And all they had to do was come up with an uh, a proposal, an alternative, that was you know, somewhere in the range. He wanted $1.9 trillion in spending, so you offer $1.5 and you settle at $1.7 and so on. They offered $600 billion, which was a, uh, an in-your-face, middle-finger package, making it clear that they weren't serious. We just saw the negotiations over an infrastructure bill, which has wide bipartisan support and support from three-fourths of Americans. And the Republicans uh, came up with a counteroffer that was about $300 billion in new spending, which was you know, about a fifth of what Democrats had wanted. And it made it clear that the bottom line for them was not a single change in the uh, ginormous tax cut bill that passed in 2017. So nothing serious there. Can things get done? Some things that are below the radar. Uh, we just saw this uh, so-called endless frontier bill on China competitiveness passed with wide bipartisan support, anything significant, anything that would give Joe Biden a little traction in the country, anything that would solve problems in the country that are big ones, they're not going to go for. And Manchin lives in a a dream world in believing that they will. Al, that takes us back to the question of Of what in the world
2: is in the mind of Joe Manchin now? Does he really believe what he's saying? Because what he's saying is patently untrue. Uh, And it flies against the experience he himself has had in the Senate. You know, the reality is he has, can have influence by playing ball. uh, in the end, he can have a lot of influence. And it's perfectly obvious that the filibuster, while some previous times with different party coalitions and and the rest may have encouraged some cross-party talk and support uh, in this environment under a Republican Party led by Mitch McConnell and with the broader influence uh, of the Republican Party, it just isn't going to happen. And so, what he's saying is ridiculous. So, why is he saying it?
0: Yep. Why?
2: Uh, I don't even know that he wants to run for another term. Uh, but my God, let's let's set assume he does. Up as the demon. In in the history of uh, of Congress and American democracy,
0: Norm, do you have any idea why he just won't say, "Okay, this is what I object to in the bill," and maybe we can agree to take that out? Why is he even refusing to say that this is about some there's there's some stuff in? that bill that he objects to. So let's uh, sort of take the rosiest possible
3: interpretation that Manchin is playing a long game and is Machiavellian and wants to do whatever he can to bring Republicans to the table, that he'll uh, let it go for a while, uh, that we'll see if he can get that support on uh, the uh, infrastructure bill, that He really wants to push the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which he believes in strongly and has one Republican co-sponsor and has said repeatedly that he's sure there will be 10 there. And then if that happens, you can begin to negotiate on the other uh, major bill on voting uh, the for the People Act. In the past, he has indicated that he wouldn't support uh, at least campaign finance reform in this bill and he's indicated some uh, skepticism about the bipartisan redistricting commissions. But you're right, Al, that right now he's not willing to talk about what he would do or what he wouldn't do. I frankly am a little frustrated with uh, Chuck Schumer that he didn't move expeditiously to bring up some of these bills, including, for example, the Manchin-Toomey gun bill, and let the Republicans filibuster that. And Manchin, of course, has already expressed frustration and anger that the uh, January 6th commission that passed the House with bipartisan support that gave the Republicans everything they wanted, that he supported strongly, was filibustered to death by the Republicans. Do a few of these and and make it very clear that they have no interest in cooperating. And we already know that uh, Mitch McConnell has said he would oppose the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act. But that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that he's just dug in his heels and isn't going to give. And if that's the case, we're screwed.
0: Let's assume the best case scenario. And then you're right. Why didn't Schumer bring up, why, why not bring up some stuff that they will, like Mansion Toomey, which that was a piece of legislation that the two of them put together right after Sandy Hook. And the fact that we didn't get that, and that was just, you know, a background check bill, and we didn't get anything. We didn't pass anything after 20 children had been killed. That was one of the lowest days uh, I felt yeah. not getting that. Not getting that. I can understand we didn't get the assault weapons ban, which I was a co sponsor of, which I don't also don't understand, but still, that was ridiculous. And why not make them prove that they're not because they aren't? Bipartisan. They will not do anything bipartisan. Look, in 2009, when we were trying to get the ACA, at the beginning, when I first got there, uh, Baucus, Max Baucus, who was chair of the finance committee, was kind of in charge of getting a bipartisan bill. He insisted that he wanted to get a bipartisan bill. Remember, he had that gang of six, and the three Republicans were Grassley, Snow, and Enzi. And he kept try and negotiate with these three, and we'd have the caucus lunch, and he'd come back and go like, well, we made some progress, but not very much. And then he'd come back the next week and go, well, we lost the progress we made, but I have some hope. And then the next week he would do that again. And it just kept going on and on. And finally, after two and a half months of this, he goes to a caucus lunch and he goes like, you know what? I've determined that they had no no interest from the very beginning in doing a bipartisan bill. And Arlen Specter, who had been a Republican and had come over to our caucus, said this. He said, well, I could have told you that. And I said, well, then why didn't you? <laughs> because we had wasted two and a half months. And, and that was precious time in the Obama administration. And so it, uh, we didn't get the bill passed until Christmas Eve when Bird came on out in his wheelchair saying, shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. They are every bit as bad now. It's the same damn thing. It's even worse, though. The Republican Party has gotten worse. And now what they're doing in Arizona and Georgia and Texas and all over the country is not just writing bills to suppress votes, but they're actually writing laws to allow partisan Republicans in these states to overturn the results of the election, just like Trump was trying to do between uh, November and, and January 20th.
2: Al, that's fundamentally correct. Um, And I like that word. It's even worse. You know, someone should have thought of that for a book title.
0: Um, Wait uh, a minute. (laughs) It's even worse than it looks is what you you said, but it's even worse than worse than it looks. It's even worse
2: than it was. That's when your new book. It's even worse than it looks. Exactly. I
0: like that title. I like that title. It's, it's, you got a book, guys.
2: <laughs> uh, Al but but really now we're getting to uh the meat of the matter. One of our political Finally. parties is unable, <laughs> unable and unwilling to play a role of a governing party in a democratic two-party system, in which treating uh, the other party as a legitimate player in an effort to reach agreements and deal with the problems the country faces—it's—it's so it's now hardwired in the Republican Party. They have become truly an anti-democratic party, as close to one as we've ever had among our major uh, political parties. And Republicans in the Senate and the House know that it's very unpopular for them to be seen as cooperating in any way with, uh, with the Democrats.
0: Well, it's very unpopular among Republican voters. Exactly. And, and most, almost all of them know if they, if they go against Trump, and go against McConnell in this case, that they will be primaried from the right and lose. If they're, if they're in a safe seat, which most of them are, and, or in a safe state, which most of them are. And so we've got a, uh, a fine mess here. I would say it's even, uh, even worse
3: than that. And here I would just disagree slightly with Tom, which I rarely do. They're not a party anymore. This is a full-blown cult. And it's the equivalent of a fanatical religious cult. And what that means is, you know, as a cult, which preceded Trump, there's no longer an ideology, it's a theology. At the same time, the fear of being shunned or excommunicated is overwhelming. So it's not just the fear of being primary, because you have people who are retiring or who retired. Lamar Alexander being a good example, who just mm-hmm. went along with all of it, because going back home to Tennessee, not that he was seeking another job where he had to curry favor, but he wasn't going to be the one who was shunned by his neighbors and friends. And at the same time, if you think about what a religious cult is, you have a theology, but it varies depending on what the cult leader says or does. So To me, the classic example of this is you have Trump, who uh, of course is responsible for a half a million or more deaths by the mishandling of the uh, pandemic, but who then does Operation Warp Speed and brags about creating all of these vaccines. So you have these cult members who say, look at the great accomplishment of Donald Trump. He created the vaccines. And then they turn around as another part of their cult uh, view, And say, but don't take these vaccines because they will bring metal that will go right to your forehead or you will become infertile. And it would be a badge of dishonor to do so. So you can hold contradictory viewpoints in your own head. But it also means that all of these Republicans, Joe Manchin is talking to in the Senate, nice people, if you want to sit down for a drink or dinner with them, who may in fact. At a deep-seated way, believe that yeah, there are some of these areas that we could work on together, but they're not going to do it in the end because they would be shunned if they did, and they go along with their cult leader and they go along with the lieutenant of their cult leader, Mitch McConnell.
0: Okay, but what you describe there, there is a germ of hope there. No, no, no you're right. I'm, I'm I'm with <laughs> that was uh, ironic that was uh, uh, yes. a form of humor i don't that disagree I do often.
2: with the word that norm has said that uh, that is the re- reality of our politics republicans don't really have any policy interests or initiatives other than cutting taxes and confirming right-wing appointees federal society to the that's it
0: Judges, <laughs> it, it,
2: it's getting the libs, and it's basically impossible to to work out any agreement on high profile issues uh, with with the Republican Party. I think this is all about Schumer is pressing ahead. Remember, there there've been two bills on on which uh, Republicans have clearly filibustered already. One was the Commission. The other was the pay equity bill. He's got others coming up, but the idea is Mansion. This is all about making sure if you use reconciliation, uh, so you need only a simple majority for infrastructure. You have to have Joe Manchin and Sinema and others along with you, and so to do that, he believes Schumer that you've got to give Mansion some room and some weeks. It's not going to be like it was with the Affordable Care Act, where it went on for months and throughout the summer. This will come to a head earlier. He's got others like the gun bill that will certainly get to the floor um, uh, soon. But I think Sadly, when you have a 50-50 Senate, you've got to have every Democrat with you. And Manchin may be deluded, but he's uh, he's got to be dealt with.
0: And Manchin was one of the 50 uh, on the package that they passed, the relief bill, right? Um, and... The question is, we'll manage to do that again, say, on infrastructure. Infrastructure, now, reconciliation for the listener, I, most of our listeners, I think, know what, what that means. But reconciliation is a, a procedure where you can pass something with a simple majority, and it has to have to do with budget. But, and let me ask you guys this, because and, and, you guys are experts on procedure in Congress. Could you, could you find a way, To put part of uh, the uh, For the People bill inside a bill, like an infrastructure bill, where you're saying something like, okay, uh, states get this much money for your election infrastructure or get this much money, but you have to take it to get highway funds uh, and you have to abide by the rules. So is there a way this, this would be called creative legislating. And my, my argument is if Chuck Schumer is going to be the Jewish LBJ, he's going to have to do, he might have to do some creative legislating. Is it, am I just uh, shouting down a Canyon or something? Yes.
3: Uh, <laughs>
0: oh, <shit. laughs> you know, it, look,
3: in theory, no. you're right. Um, and in theory, the, uh, a majority in the Senate could alter the reconciliation rule, which includes the Byrd rule, and uh, you know requires that everything be related to spending in a certain fashion. And if they came up with a creative solution like you suggest, the, even if the parliamentarian said, no, that doesn't fit, a, a majority could overrule the parliamentarian. But you have to have all 50 on board with something that is extraordinarily disciplined. And
0: I don't think you get Joe Manchin for that uh, either. By the way, the Republicans did change the rules for reconciliation in order to get their tax cut in, in uh, 17. One
3: of the things that continues to frustrate me about uh, the press, and you know, we took on the mainstream media very directly in the book, It's Even Worse Than It Looks. For the yeah, both sides of the we talk, yeah, talked yeah. about earlier. But even now, there's this sort of drumbeat, which you get from Manchin, but also from many reporters. Look, if you uh, change the filibuster rule, then it'll come back to bite you uh, because the Republicans will use it in ways you don't like. And that Mitch McConnell had the chance to change the filibuster rule in the first two years of uh, the uh, Trump administration and didn't as if he would abide by any norm. What we have seen with Mitch McConnell is that norms mean nothing to him if there are goals he wants to accomplish. We saw that obviously with the outrageous behavior on Supreme Court justices. But the reality is he didn't change the filibuster rule on legislation because as Tom said, he didn't need to. He wanted the exactly. tax cut. They changed the rec- reconciliation rule to get their tax cut. He wanted the judges. He changed it for the Supreme Court. And if he had had another set of great legislative objectives, he would have rolled over the filibuster rule uh, right away. So Schumer needs to give a little bit of time for uh, Manchin to be convinced that Joe Biden has done what he could to try and work out a compromise bipartisan plan on infrastructure before you move on. And one other thing I would say, Al, is that for all of the kabuki dancing that went on over the Affordable Care Act, the two and a half months of fruitless attempts to get bipartisan support. One bottom line there is that you when you got uh, and needed all 60 Democratic senators to get this done in the Senate, and you had to get Joe Lieberman and Ben Nelson and, uh, and Blanche uh, Lincoln and others. You got them because they were convinced that the Republicans, despite all of their efforts, would do nothing with them. So there was a price to be paid, but there was also a benefit that came from making those efforts. And some of that has to be done now. But I'll tell you, the other reality is if you've got 50, even as we're speaking in this podcast, you could end up with 49. Somebody could be hit by a car or have a massive attack or have something else happen where you're down to 49. There is an urgency about moving on a lot of these things that just can't be overstated. And Schumer and Biden have to realize
0: that. What you said kind of confirmed what Tom said about Mitch not getting rid of the filibuster, which is all they wanted to do was cut taxes and confirm judges. That they could do, the first they could do with reconciliation, and the second they did by... uh, you know, changing the rule. It was already 50 for federal judges other than the Supreme Court, and they changed it for Gorsuch. So that speaks to Tom's argument that there's nothing they want to do. They're a nihilistic party. Go ahead, Tom. I I think your effort to try to sneak
2: before the people act into a infrastructure reconciliation bill is, is a loser. It's uh it's just too much to ask. It's not gonna happen. It can't be put together. Manchin and cinema and Hassan and and others would object to it. I think the object uh is is not now to go too far. They're about ready to move to the reconciliation and get a really good infrastructure package passed. Together with what they've done on the pandemic, with the vaccines, with the initial rescue package, you get the infrastructure. The odds are President Biden is not going to be less popular. He's going to be more popular. The economy's likely to to run strong uh, in the year ahead. So you're in a position to resist, to counter the traditional midterm loss of seats. And you actually have a shot at both holding the House and increasing the majority in the Senate. So you become in a better position to do something in the third and the and the fourth year.
0: But that's all assuming, Tom, that's all assuming that these laws they're writing, these election laws in these states, which include, for example, the authority being given to state officials, to partisan state officials, to overturn the results or to judges. Some of the stuff they're doing is very scary. In Arizona, for example, they rewrote the law so that instead of the secretary of state determining who won the election. They changed it because she is a Democrat. They changed it to the attorney general who's a Republican. This goes beyond just your uh, garden variety voter suppression, <laughs> which they're doing. This goes to a, if, if these laws had been in place, Trump might have been successful.
2: I agree with you. I But the way to deal with that is not to push all of S1. Uh, with campaign finance and ethics and gerrymandering and the kitchen sink. In fact, S1 doesn't even deal with the most serious of the violations uh, that Republicans are pushing to uh, basically give them the power to ignore the popular vote in their state. And, and yeah, they have, have, have thought a legal they would do that? So, but So you go after that in a very targeted way and build a movement behind that i
0: wasn't by the way tom i wasn't suggesting put the entirety of for the people act in that's not what i was doing i was talking about putting a piece of it in that stops that i don't think we've been pessimistic enough
3: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) so i'm going to add another little element here which is The Supreme Court is not done issuing its opinions uh, for this term. And one of the ones that's remaining is a very important precursor of what we may see ahead. And it's basically about two provisions in Arizona passed before this that make it harder to vote. And an appeals court uh, said, and of course, the argument, uh, which is always their argument, is it was about voter fraud. An appeals court mm-hmm, rejected course. these parts of the law, saying that actually they were aimed at keeping minorities and others from voting. And the Supreme Court is going to issue an opinion on this case. If the Supreme Court agrees with the Arizona law, then we're in even bigger trouble, because the likelihood is that whatever does get passed, if we do manage to get these important elements of the For the People Act done, which, as you have both said, and it's true, don't deal with their ability to overturn the results of an election. But still, you might be able to make the margins large enough that it's harder for them to do. But if the court says you can't even do that, then we've got problems. Now, you know, having said that, this is a state law. And the fact is that Congress has the clear authority to regulate the time, manner, and place of federal elections. But we've got six justices on the Supreme Court who don't care a whit about voting rights and are activist and willing to overturn almost everything. And it's not at all clear to me that even this revision of the Voting Rights Act, if it passes the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, will get five votes of support, no matter how careful they are doing it. So we've got bigger obstacles because they've packed the courts.
0: Let's stop for uh, just one second. What the John Lewis bill does is sort of reverse Shelby County, right? Yes. And it reinstates preclearance, which I think my listeners know, uh, or most of them or all of them know. Basically, uh, preclearance in the Voting Rights Act was that any changes that the states or counties that had a history of discriminating against people of color... Any changes they made in their election laws had to be pre-cleared by the Justice Department, the Federal Justice Department, uh, to make sure that uh, they weren't discriminating against uh, people of color. And they got rid of that in Shelby County because Roberts basically said, "Okay, this this has been fixed. Uh, Pre-clearance worked. There's no discrimination anymore. We don't need pre-clearance anymore.
2: It's not an easy thing to try to satisfy (laughs) Roberts and the Roberts Court. And that's why the John Lewis bill is not actually written completely yet, because they're trying to come up with a formulation that would pass muster with the Supreme Court and thereby reinstate the preclearance under Section 5 of the of the Voting Rights Act, it's uh, Norm's right. It's not a done deal. If they uh, if they pass this bill, in any case, it would only apply to uh, prospective legislation. It would would in no way affect laws that have already been passed or would be passed before such a bill were uh, enacted and uh, signed by the president.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay, we're on that optimistic note, we're going to take a quick break. We're talking with Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. We'll be right back after this word.
4: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: Welcome back. We're talking to Norm Ornstein and Tom Mann. Hey, Norm, should we talk about our our filibuster? Yeah. uh, uh, You know, our proposal. Why why don't you describe it? Sure.
3: Well, first, let's say that, you know, what Joe Manchin has said, he did it first in an op-ed in the Washington Post, then one in the West Virginia paper. uh, And he said it multiple times. I will not support any change in the rules that ends the filibuster or weakens it. So uh, the approach that we have taken is designed to make it clear that this is not weakening the filibuster. You could argue that it's restoring it because it means that the burden falls where it should on the minority. The whole idea here is that a minority that feels intensely about something but doesn't have majority support, either in the Senate or in the country, that you can uh, pay the price of Uh, Going all out and uh, making sacrifices so that you can shed light on it and change the public and change the Senate. Right now, of course, the burden is entirely on the majority. And as you have pointed out many times, Al, your revelation on this goes back to when you were new in the Senate and leaving on a Thursday afternoon and went over to be friendly to Senator Jim Bunning, the Republican uh, uh, senator from Kentucky. And said see you on monday and he said no you won't you have to be there i don't because it's a cloture vote and there we see it and we saw it with robert Byrd coming in in his wheelchair uh probably uh, shortening his life because uh mitch mcconnell forced the 60 to be there
0: and what we mean by that is right now the way it stands is this, you need one Senator to say, I object, and you have a filibuster. And then you need 60 senators to end it. And what you and I have been suggesting is that instead of 60 to end it, you need 41 to continue the filibuster. So the burden, so Jim Bunning would have had to have shown up. And I wouldn't have had to. So, <laughs> right? So, so I could stay in Minnesota and, and campaign or, you know, meet people around Minnesota or do whatever I wanted on my Monday. And um, Bunny would have had to come and, and continue this filibuster by being one of 41. Then we've added to uh, that with the talking filibuster. So why don't you continue?
3: Yeah. There? And so, you know, if if you just say you need 41 there still have to be some members of the majority there to be able to make a quorum uh, so that the uh, Senate can continue to do business. But if you want to make it tough for the minority, which is what it's supposed to be, that they really have to uh, go all out if they're going to block something that has clear majority support. They not only have to be there and be there at what might be uh, the middle of the night or uh, at times that are very inconvenient, on Fridays and on Mondays. Or for a
0: long time. uh,
3: That all of them have to be there and they have to be on the floor. They have to have 41 41. on the floor and they have to talk Mm -hmm. relevantly about the issue at hand. And that puts a major burden on the minority, which is a burden they should have. And that's the way the filibuster was supposed to work, that it's up to the minority and that changed uh, when they changed the rule from a present and voting standard to a fixed number, the three-fifths of the Senate. And we're putting the burden back where it belongs. We're restoring the filibuster. That ought to appeal to Joe Manchin and ideally ought to appeal to the others like Kristen Cinema.
0: Tom, why don't you explain present and voting versus uh, two-thirds versus 60? Because a lot of people think, oh, well, they made it easier to break a filibuster. Nope, they didn't make it easier to break a filibuster when it went from two-thirds president voting to 60. Can you explain that?
2: They Now it's 60 votes, period. Uh, while in the past it was a percentage of those who were on the floor and voting.
5: So- right.
2: A smaller attendance, the minority trying to filibuster, can lose if enough of them don't show up on the floor.
0: So if there's 60 senators and you need two-thirds of those present and voter, and there's are 60 present, then you only need 40. Is that correct?
2: That's correct.
0: Okay. So that—and that, I—because I, I hear this all the time and I hear this from actual MSNBC commentators. Well, they made it easier— to uh, and yeah. <laughs> a filibuster by reducing it from 67 to 60. No, 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 they made it harder. You know, we had a good example
3: uh, just about a month ago when the Senate ended up on a Thursday staying in session for about six hours longer than they had anticipated uh, because they were finishing something up. But 18 Republican senators did not show up because they had planes to catch and speeches to give, and if you had uh, had this present voting standard at that point, you could have brought up the uh, Affordable Care Act uh, revisions, the For the People Act, and a number of other things, and accomplished the goal if it were three-fifths of those present in voting. You can get uh, that done with less than a majority if they don't show up, and right now that doesn't work.
0: You saw on the January 6th commission, they only had 35 no votes. Yes, exactly.
3: You know, the the interesting
2: practical question is obviously all of the Republicans in the minority would would oppose the rule change. So you'd have to use the nuclear option, that is to change the precedent. Sure. Uh, now this this would be a very ambitious change in uh, in precedent, but not impossible. And well, it'd I be think... one
0: where you can argue that it is uh, both actually, in a certain way, strengthening the filibuster because it means that you'll have debate, and that the minority, uh, yeah, has to have skin in the game. But there'll be debate, so American people, if they if they want to stop the For the People Act they have to get up on their feet and defend you can't give water to someone standing in line to vote. I want to hear that argument. I want them to stand there, not for a day, not for two days, but for three days, four days. I want Chuck Grassley, who's 87 years old, to have to be one of the 41 who has to be there for maybe they give him a break. And by my math, if every one of them had to be there an equal amount of time, they'd each get five hours a day off. So they'd each have to be on the floor for 19 hours. And Chuck Grassley at a certain point is going to go, well, I don't want to do this. I'm 87 years old. I'm going to die if I do this. <laughs> and McConnell go, you think I do? I'm not going to be here. I'll only be here for five minutes. I'll tell Cotton to has to be here for 23 hours.
2: Amen. Um, yes. <laughs> that's what
0: I'm talking about. You know, this is about our, our friggin' democracy. You know, the guys in the Battle of the Bulge didn't go like, I can't believe I have to be here in this foxhole all day and night.
3: So now can you do imitations of uh, 87-year-old Jim Inhofe and 86-year-old Richard Shelby?
0: I really can't do those guys. Okay. Uh, I don't know why. But you can do 80-year-old not... Mitch McConnell. Uh, yeah, uh, Mitch McConnell would just. Um, what you're talking about here is impossible. I mean, we I couldn't keep people there. I'd I give up. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's McConnell giving up if, if we had to do this. Yeah. I mean, it, it's. Uh, as I was saying, the guys, in the, you know, the, I'm cold in this foxhole. Can I get like. You know, leave now and get an apartment and warm up and have something to eat and then come back to the foxhole. No, we're in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. (laughs) And then it's like, you know, Hitler didn't end our democracy. The Confederacy didn't end our democracy, but Mitch McConnell's going to end our democracy. Great. You know, this is
2: so clearly appropriate at this time. The worst thing that's happened to Congress and. Recent decades has been the routinization of the supermajority requirement.
0: The whatinization?
2: The routinization, Al, You know, like oh, routine. Okay, routine. Uh, okay, <laughs> oh, I making, got it. Making it normal, and it's. it's I was crazy. in a root
0: cellar for a while there. <laughs> routinization. Okay.
2: It was never intended. <laughs> it utterly destroyed majority rule in uh in the Congress. Well, yeah. And and this is the this is the way to go after it and build a movement behind it once people see it in action and I think Democrats ought to uh, ought to make the the move on it and it ought to come uh, obviously sometime in uh, in the first two years of this administration.
0: After they abuse it. I mean, that's what kind of Norm was saying earlier. Make them abuse it. Make right. them abuse it. Make them abuse it until everyone goes like, oh, come on, guys. Come on. I mean, that even Joe, because Joe has said exactly what Norm said. He said, I don't want uh, I won't vote to end the filibuster. I will vote to modify it. And that's what we're really talking about. And actually, to, and again, I think it's restoring it to what it was supposed to be. So in a way, and that means in a way, strengthening it. So there, so we win. So let's make it a movement, everybody, my listeners here. Everybody, be cognizant of this, and then shout at people on the street. Hey, you going down the street? (laughs) You know how we can amend the filibuster without ending it, so that Mansion's happy, and the person will go like, "Get away from me!" (laughs) Are you (laughs) crazy? I was just trying to go to McDonald's. Oi! Listen, Al, <laughs> our democracy is uh, is
2: genuinely in crisis, and it's very depressing if uh, Republicans are positioned to violate uh, the rules and norms and basically ignore the popular vote. That's the real concern in in uh, an election. And they are. The trick is to excite the public about what's going on, to increase the majorities, and uh, in the meantime, work on returning the Senate to a body of deliberation and and legislating.
0: Okay, we'll do that. Phew. We've solved everything. Norm? Uh, I'm, a you know... (laughs) uh, I have nothing to
3: add to that call for justice.
0: Yeah, but boy, oh boy, Uh, you know, this is worse than it was in 2009. This is worse than it was in 2012 when you guys wrote that. This is really bad. Well, and, you know, one
3: thing we can add here, Al, is that we focused more on the Republican Party in the House and Senate at that point. Now what we've seen is that this has, like a virus, spread in the most virulent way to states and to the party at the local level, uh, the cult at the local level, and to the public as a whole. The fact that even now, 70% or so of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. That almost a third say that if uh, your approach to the world is in danger, violence would be acceptable. That we have these laws that are designed to overturn the results of an election and that make Jim Crow laws look enlightened uh, as a consequence. That we have in Texas... Not only some of the most draconian measures uh, on elections, but that they have just passed a bill that basically says anybody can get and carry a gun without any permit, without any check, uh, background check at all. That we have the Texas Republican Party that, in its platform, basically wants to get out of the UN and abolish the Fed, among other things. That we have these radical crazies out there, and some of them getting elected now not just to state and local offices, but to Congress in larger numbers, and that the very fundamental fabric of our society and what we believed in and the uh, freedom uh, that democracy brings with it are under direct and imminent threat. This is so much worse than 2009.
0: And on that note... Uh, Have a nice day. I thank. I want to thank you guys. For your, uh, your, your, uh, contribution to public dialogue and, to, uh, to, so that all my listeners can understand that we're, we're doomed. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And thank you for all that you do. <laughs> this was fun. I was Lots of fun, Al, Thank you. <laughs> okay. Bye guys. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed, uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen to ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
4: The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV.